0: Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.
1: and welcome to another episode of How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, January 11th, and it's actually 2024. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Hello, Claire. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New
0: Year to you, Jen. Uh, It's been a minute. Did you survive too many cookies and too much wine?
1: I did a lot of cookies, a lot of wine, and as I discussed with you earlier, a lot of babysitting of my husband's grandchildren, which was fabulous. Like, Using your brain in a different way, but also kind of a lot of work. Well, I'm ready to give lessons anytime
0: as a grandmother of 14, almost 15. So, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing.
1: I've had some experience. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was pretty good at it. I was, I was proud of myself. I was pretty good at it. But 2024 is here and it's all happening. The Iowa caucus is next Monday. We're going to spotlight that as the first election test for 2024. With our take on what you should be watching for there and what the results will mean for the Republican primary moving forward. But I mean, I love election years.
0: And, you know, today we're also going to look at immigration. I think people need to realize that are trying to ignore this issue, that if we're going to talk about how to win 2024 and we're not talking about immigration, we're going to get in trouble record numbers coming across the border. We have had millions of people come across the border in the last several years. And something has to happen here. The Democrats have to address this. We're going to talk to Congressman Veronica Escobar, who represents the El Paso area, who is very, very knowledgeable about all of the ins and outs of this issue and how we need to handle it, both from a position of being humanitarian and American and embracing our values, but also understanding that there's some hardcore
1: politics involved here. Amen. We got to be hearing some better solutions articulated than we're hearing now. But first, we've got some winners and losers to drop. So who's your first winner of 2024, Claire?
0: I think a winner that we really need to recognize this week is the late Elijah Cummings, who began an investigation into foreign money taken by Donald Trump as president of the United States. Back right after he took office and Jamie Raskin and the House Oversight Dems continued that work and they issued a scathing report full of facts, records and receipts that everybody should read. And for years they fought in the courts to get the financial records. I mean, the nerve of the Republicans talking about Hunter Biden and grifting off foreign countries because of his dad's position when they have documented the Democrats in a report that just looking at 20 countries and four businesses. They've documented $8 million the Trump family made while he was in office off foreign countries. And many of those countries are our enemies. They are people who do not respect democracies, who have autocrats and dictators in charge, who abuse human rights every day. Please read this report. I I tweeted a direct link to this report this morning. People need to read it. It is on... Even if you just read the introduction... I think being armed with the facts about how serious the grift was during the Trump administration versus the BS they're doing. I mean, do I think Hunter did the right thing? No. Do I think Joe Biden had anything to do with it? Absolutely not. But Trump had to do with this. I guarantee you, Trump was telling them, make all the money you can off Russia, make all the money you can off Saudi.
2: Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me, they spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. I love China. The biggest bank in the world is from China. You know where their United States headquarters is located? In this building, in Trump Tower. I love China.
0: So
1: I say the Elijah Cummings, Jamie Raskin, and the House Oversight Dems in this report was really good. It's like a really effective pushback on the notion that like, oh, Trump's family is corrupt, Biden's family is corrupt. No, Biden not corrupt. And like, here are the actual receipts on what these, the money these guys make. So my winner is Nikki Haley because of Chris Christie dropping out last night. And, you know, do I think wait, Nikki Haley is going to— Wait, wait, what? wait, 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 I got to
0: interrupt you. Okay, so I know we talked about this yesterday, and it sounded what? like a really good idea for okay. us to say Nikki Haley was the winner and Chris Christie was the loser. But then Chris Christie in a live mic, like, totally just it's takes classic. her. I agree with you. I'm not trying to. I I love you dearly. And you are my partner in
1: figuring all this out this year. But after that live mic thing. okay, I think he's not my favorite, but Chris Christie dropping out on the Wednesday before the Monday Iowa caucuses. It's not a game changer, but he took the most effective action he could to try to prevent Donald Trump from becoming the nominee. So by dropping out on Wednesday, it's like Nikki Haley needs something to happen. You need some kind of exigent action to happen days before that like helps propel you, even if it's just a storyline, right? And so Nikki Haley has that now. She's like, Chris Christie dropped out. Of course, Chris Christie said a bunch of crappy stuff about her, but still he gave a very impassioned speech against Donald Trump. It's the best speech I've heard in the Republican primary thus far. It can help her get to second place, It could help her possibly, possibly win New Hampshire. But importantly, what I liked hearing Chris Christie say was, I am not going to enable Donald Trump to become president of the United States. I'm going to do what I can to prevent that. And that is like the same thing Liz Cheney says. I think that matters because, you know, if you look at polling in New Hampshire, Joe Biden and most polls, Joe Biden is beating Donald Trump in New Hampshire. That's not true for most battleground states, but I think it's true in New Hampshire because New Hampshire voters are hearing, Chris Christie kick the crap out of Donald Trump all the time, right? So it's like these arguments, even though it's the Republican primary, they can have an impact on the general election. And so for that reason, I think Chris Christie's is my winner. Okay, I, I agree. I had to like add that
0: little aside at the beginning. So for our losers, let's hear directly from the losers, and, and it'll be obvious why they're such losers.
2: What's in the best interest of the country is not to have an 80-year-old man sitting in jail that continues to divide our country. What's in the best interest of the country would be to pardon him so that we can move on as a country and no longer talk about him.
1: Nikki Haley said that she would pardon Trump if he ends up being convicted and she wins the election. Would you commit to the same? Well, I've already said that a long ago. I
2: mean, I think we got to move on as a country.
0: So, Jen, what do you think? Um, Obviously, pardoning Trump is about the biggest loser move you could make, right? Ron DeSantis has
1: basically said, I am here because Donald Trump might get convicted and then I'm your pick if he does, right? Last week, someone said, you need to stay in because he might get convicted. And he's like, I agree, I'm going to stay in. And then he said in the debate they did last night, he said something you know, akin to this, that like a liberal jury in DC might convict him. Like I'm standing in the wings. But not if you don't make the argument that having him be convicted is a problem, not if you're saying that he would pardon him if he does it. Not if you say that the DOJ is making this all political, then they've just fundamentally undercut the best argument that they have against Trump. So, yeah, losers. Losers. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, Congresswoman Veronica Escobar from Texas, she represents the border in El Paso. She is joining us to dig into all of what's happening at the southern border and what Biden and Democrats should do about it. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Republicans in Congress are blocking any progress at the border in an effort to use immigration as a wedge issue against President Biden in 2024. But voters want order. They want solutions. Inaction is a no-win for both parties. So back in a moment with that.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.
1: Welcome back. Immigration is a top issue on voters' minds right now, and that is regardless of party affiliation. And new polling shows that nearly half of Americans see the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border as a crisis.
0: You know, the number of people moving around the world is higher than ever. This is a global issue in terms of migrants. But the Republicans have really focused in on this to make this the wedge issue for 2024. And honestly, meanwhile, the Democrats seem to be struggling with a clear message about where they stand on what's going on at the border?
1: So with all this going on, we wanted to have Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar on the show. She is from El Paso, so she represents the district. She is the first woman to represent her congressional district, the first of two Latinas from Texas in Congress. But also, I've had the chance to meet with uh, Congresswoman, I've had the chance to meet with you to discuss this before. She is about solutions. And as a bipartisan bill to deal with immigration, And if Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border, what Biden administration is doing about it and what the solutions are. And so, Congresswoman, we are really grateful
2: to have you join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for tackling this topic. It's definitely the biggest challenge that we face domestically right now. And Americans want and deserve a solution. And I'm always up for talking about solutions.
0: So, Congresswoman, I think some Democrats are in denial about the scope of this problem. And I don't think they realize, because they're not seeing as many visuals as most Americans about what has happened, particularly in the last couple of years. In December, there were over 300,000 people who crossed the southern border, which is by far the highest monthly total ever recorded. First, let's talk about how this is impacting life for your constituents. The the struggles and the stress that you're seeing among your constituents who typically have been the most welcoming people in the world to those who are seeking a better life. How has that changed with this kind of overwhelming the border that is going on right now?
2: Well, Claire, you're absolutely right. I mean, I I don't know how anyone can look at what's happening on the border today and say that this is acceptable. But there are people in denial. Some of those folks are in my own party. And there are folks on the other side of the aisle who love the issue so much they don't want a solution. Meanwhile, communities like my own, El Paso, Texas, where we have had among the highest number of encounters on the border, we are doing everything we can to keep up. We're doing everything we can as a community to essentially be flexible because you never know in any given day if 1,500 people will be apprehended and released to the community or if it will be 36 people who will be apprehended and then released to the community. And so it's really hard for our local governments and for our shelter network to really predict what's going to happen. So in the community, we've learned to try to deal with the unknown and be ready for the worst case scenario or the most challenging scenario. But folks in my community are tired. Are they mad, Congresswoman?
0: Are they mad enough that they're changing their attitudes about how welcoming we should be to those who are coming here because they just want a better life for their families?
2: There are some that are mad and I have some longtime Democrats who have been Democrats of goodwill and of good heart who sound more like Republicans on this issue now. The political environment is changing. Right. And we have to recognize this isn't just unacceptable for everyone whose lives are impacted from the migrants to our federal law enforcement to the welcoming communities. But you're right. As Democrats, we have to recognize that we have to come forward with realistic solutions in the current political environment in order to address this once and for all.
1: There's a lot to get through on the, this is a very tricky issue. It's a very sensitive issue, politically sensitive issue. People really need to fundamentally understand this. A defining feature of this issue for Republicans is they want chaos. They want to make this an issue and they do not want to fix the issue. And it is at the heart of the Trump appeal is this issue, right? One illuminating example of that. Governor of your state, Greg Abbott, just before the holidays, he signed a bill that makes illegal immigration a crime. Sounds not too nefarious, but it actually does make it more complicated for the federal government to be able to do its own work here. Can
2: you you know explain why that is? Absolutely. You're right. In my state, With the change in law, basically what has happened now in a community like mine that is majority Latino and is on the border, we have already begun seeing more civil rights violations and we're going to continue to see more. And it's not just about the fact that we're going to be seeing and have seen more civil rights violations. But the conditions for those of us who live in communities on the border that are mostly Latino, those conditions are more dangerous. And so I'll give you a specific example. The governor has used the Texas Department of Public Safety as an arm of Operation Lone Star, his effort to crack down on migration. And the DPS is essentially engaging in multiple high-speed pursuits every week. On any given day, there will be a high-speed pursuit in a very urban, dense area in my community. It has resulted in fatalities. It's resulted in significant property damage. And recently, a family, a local family, American citizens, Latino, brown, in their car, were pursued in a chase by DPS, pulled over And they were flabbergasted. They didn't understand what was happening. They hadn't violated any laws, Uh, but DPS identified them as human smugglers. And the results, thankfully, were not fatal. There were no deaths. There were no injuries. Their car was damaged. And this, I think, is, is what we can expect in communities like mine along the border because of this law and because of these tactics.
0: So obviously he's trying to do something that the Supreme Court has said the states can't do and TBD, whether or not he has any impact whatsoever other than making this a political issue rather than really solving any problem. But let's talk about solving the problem. Let's shift our focus to Washington and what's going on there. I've been watching with interest what's been going on in the Senate. Langford is really trying. You know, listen, he and I hardly ever voted together, but we worked together on a number of things, and we did find some common ground on some things that mattered. I do think he's sincere in trying to find something that will make a difference and that hopefully could pass the House. Can you give us any idea of what the Senate package looks like compared to what the House has done in H.R. 2, whatever they're trying to propose versus what the Senate is putting forth, and what are the chances that this actually becomes a deal, particularly around Ukraine funding?
2: That's a great question. Here's the reality, and I agree with you. I do think the negotiators in the Senate are working in good faith, and I believe they want a solution. The challenge is they're doing the same thing that the federal government has been doing unsuccessfully for decades, which is address immigration as a border only issue. Mm. And if we continue to do that, you know, it's like that definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's crazy. We've got to reform the entire system, which my bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill, the Dignity Act with Maria Salazar from Florida does. But even if they get something across the finish line in the Senate, in the House. I mean, yesterday, the House basically was frozen in time. Last votes were pulled because the hardline Freedom Caucus was angry that their speaker, who's a member of their own Freedom Caucus, had the audacity to achieve a top-line budget deal with the Senate. And so we're talking about not just the regular unreasonable Republicans who have control of the House of Representatives. But we're talking about people who want to burn this place down, who basically don't want a solution. One of my Republican colleagues from Texas, Troy Nels, basically let the cat out of the bag and said publicly what we knew was the truth, which is, We don't want to solve this. We don't want to really address this. He said it. That guy, Troy Nels, always speaks the truth. Yeah. Multiple. This is not the first time. (laughs) He he does. That's absolutely right. And what Republicans in the House are doing is they're pointing to H.R. 2 as their solution. H.R. 2 is a fantasy. And I've been so frustrated with journalists here on Capitol Hill, and I've been telling them, y'all need to really dig into HR2 to show the American people it's not a solution. Fundamental to HR2, to what the House Republicans are saying is their big solution, fundamental to it is that Mexico will accept every single migrant that we expel from the country. That is a joke. That's never happened. It will never happen. It's a fantasy. But Republicans keep saying, this is our solution. We've got H.R. too. And no one but me and a few others are saying, it's a lie. Wait, it's wait, a big wait, lie. wait, wait. So their bill actually
0: says that the United States of America can dictate to another country that they are required to take every migrant that wants to come
2: into the United States. Can't be it. That's actually written down not as explicitly, but they depend on on expulsion policies as their solution. And mind you, Donald Trump tried expulsion policies. President Biden has tried expulsion policies. And Mexico has only agreed to accept a certain number, a limited number. But in their bill, basically, is the fantasy that Mexico somehow will magically take all expelled migrants. also say that it's a fantasy. will pay for the wall. <laughs> You're going to pay for the wall, right? Right, right. 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 And it's, it's even more fantastic than Donald Trump's deal right. of, oh, Mexico will pay for it, right? It's even more outrageous and unrealistic than that.
0: Here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried that you get it, and I think that there are others that get it that are from states that are not bright blue. But what I worry the most about is the Republicans know this is a powerful issue, this cycle. And I have been steeped in the politics of immigration in a state where it is not easy. And I really believe if you look at polling right now, in fact, just a recent poll in Pennsylvania says the number one issue for Republicans is immigration, border security, Number one issue for Democrats is saving democracy. But for independent voters, the two issues tie. So if we just talk about saving democracy and we don't show the country anything on immigration, we are asking to lose states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Nevada, even Arizona, and certainly would have a much more difficult time in many other states. So what can be done, either by the White House or by the Democrats in Congress to tell the American people that we get it, that there's a problem and it needs to be solved, and just releasing people into the country, millions of them, is not the
2: answer. Could not agree more with you. And I have been sounding the alarm within my Democratic caucus here in the House for a while now. And, you know, I I am a progressive Democrat. I'm a longtime immigrant rights advocate. But- I recognize the reality, which is we've got to address this, not just for our political survival and, frankly, for the survival of our country, because if we lose the White House to Donald Trump, that's it for the United States of America. So we've got to demonstrate to the American people that we're willing to compromise on this issue. I'm willing to compromise as a progressive, as a 30-year immigrant rights advocate I'm willing to compromise, and I put pen to paper with a Republican colleague to come up with a common-sense solution. Democrats will hate certain things in the bill. Republicans will hate certain things in the bill, but it addresses what's happening. And I'm going to keep sounding the alarm within my own party And I'm going to keep meeting one-on-one with my colleagues. We're growing the number of co-sponsors. It's a lot of work because this is the toughest issue domestically for our country right now. But I'm devoting a, a lot of time and energy and resources to this. The other thing I would add, because, you know, some of my Democratic friends will say,
1: look, it's the number one issue for Republicans, but in exit polls, immigration is low on the list for Democrats and swing voters when they come out of the voting booth. But I think that a big problem is it looks chaotic and Biden it's the president and Democrats are the party that are supposed to make government work and be competent. And it looks like incompetence. Congressman, I feel like the Biden administration has a much better story to tell on how they're managing the border then for whatever reason, I have yet to hear. It may be the filter, I don't know. But I think, I mean, here's what I understand. On the border, they have requested more money for more border agents than any administration ever has. There are more border agents there than there ever has before. The rate of deportations under Biden is slightly higher than it was under Trump. The numbers are bigger, but the rate is actually slightly higher. A lot of people don't love that, but it is true. When it comes to the interior and dealing with the migrants who are here, they are pushing to make it easier to authorize those people to be able to go out and work so that they are able to contribute, to the, that they are able to make money and not be a burden on cities like Chicago and New York. Again, Legislation could solve this, but Republicans aren't letting it happen. And then thirdly, they are working really hard south of the border to try to process people before they come here, to try to stem the flow, taking diplomatic measures to try to make things better in these other countries so that people aren't pushing to come here. So I think they could argue, we have done more on the border than any president. Congress is standing in the way. We want to make borders secure, immigration orderly, and they want chaos— is that the right argument to make here? So people just need to understand they're dealing with the problem. They inherited a mess. They are trying to make it better. These are all the steps they've taken. And now it's on Republicans in Congress to do more. A thousand percent.
2: Absolutely.
1: Why don't you think they're making that argument? I don't know if they don't want to say deportations are up or what, but there is a more effective argument to be making than that you hear now.
2: Yeah. You know, the every time the Biden administration talks about what they are doing in order to address the situation, they get criticism from the left and the right. So they're in a no-win situation. And in fact, you know, there are groups, immigrant rights groups, for example, that have reached out to members of Congress and have said, you know, back when he introduced the supplemental bill, before it became embroiled with the Ukraine funding, we had groups reaching out saying, don't support that funding because it's more money for Border Patrol and ICE. Yeah. People need to recognize that the president is doing everything he can, not just in a very difficult political environment. And not just with the limited tools that he has, but also one thing that you left uh, off your list is the fact that red Mm -hmm. states like mine, every time the president introduces a new strategy, a new policy, a new rule, red states like mine will take the president's administration to court and sue him to stop his ability to try something new. Right. So th- they are maneuvering really in the worst, most challenging environment. Meanwhile, Congress is sitting on its hands, and that is unacceptable.
0: Well, and worse than that, Congresswoman, they're doing this ridiculous impeachment thing in Mallorcas <laughs> when there's absolutely no impeachable right. offense. And, you know, Langford said it really well the other day. I mean, the, a really conservative Republican senator who is working on this issue said, Hey, guys, you take Mallorca's out and you put another person in, acting or confirmed, it's the same policies. So unless we change something other than the guy at the top, this is such performative politics. It is making me want to, like, get sick in my mouth. It is just ridiculous. It, it really is. It, and they're just—they're making impeachment mean nothing. Yeah. I mean, impeachment is going to be nothing
2: before they're done. You know, here's here's the challenge for these hardline extremist Republicans— They want to keep Americans and their base on this treadmill of rage. Right. They don't want people off that treadmill of rage. So they've got to keep feeding that treadmill. They've got to keep putting whatever they can to that treadmill to make sure people stay angry. And I, I don't know when their voters are going to wake up and recognize not only have they not improved things, but they've made things worse. And meanwhile, I'm always angry as a result. So th- these are the folks who want to burn everything down. And they know full well that even if they were successful in impeaching really an incredible public servant, Secretary Alejandro Mayorcas, that not only would nothing improve, things would get worse. They know it. And they welcome it. Right.
0: Listen, we really are grateful uh, for you. I I think you've got a very clear voice. I hope you continue to use it because I think this issue needs you. I think this country needs you. Uh, Speaking to this issue, you have incredible credibility and you understand the problem better, I think, than most folks do. So thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to do some Iowa caucus stuff. (laughs) So stay tuned.
1: Welcome back. So, since 1972, the Iowa caucuses have been the first primary contest of our election season. And while candidates have often lost Iowa and still go on to capture the nomination. It is true, whether you like it or not, that the whittling of the field starts there. And our first contest of 2024 is just a few days away. It's on Monday night. And the weather, I mean, even for Iowa, it's supposed to be, I think, 35 degrees below zero with the chill. So tough sub-zero wintry mix. Yeah. So let me just say the,
0: the weather hype here, let's take a deep breath. I mean, these people live in the Midwest. Cold weather is part of what we all have experienced growing up. I have a hard time believing that having to put on your gloves and your hat and get in your heated car and driving to a parking lot at a public building that will be warm and toasty inside. is going to stop the caucuses from having the result that we all think they're going to have. So uh, I think everybody needs to chill on the weather hype just slightly. Everybody sounds like the Miami Dolphins who are acting like it's the end of the world, that they're going to have to play in cold weather at Arrowhead. (laughs) I mean, come on, thaw the fins out, guys. See if you got what it takes. It's called home field advantage. Okay, sorry. I digress.
1: Yeah, it's not like a tailgate. It's not like the caucuses happen outside, so it's true. Exactly, exactly. We've been through this, right? We've been through Iowa. We have you and I. You and I have been through Iowa caucuses, and we want to spot like like we do think Trump is going to win, but there are important things to look out for. Um, so like, what's something that stands out to you from like your caucus experiences in the past, though?
0: Well, candidly, what stands out to me is how cold it was. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was it was cold. I, I mean, but here's the thing: my first caucus experience was in 1988. I was a state representative. I oh. was very young. I was up in Iowa helping Dick Gephardt try to win oh, the Iowa caucus in 88. Yeah, 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 yeah. 88, right. Okay, and yeah. I remember, I first of all, I was in the office for several days working on, you know, you sort your caucus goers by who you think are your ones. It will definitely be for you yeah. and then twos and threes and so forth. I did that for a few days. I knocked on doors for a few days, but my assignment on the day of the caucuses was visibility. And that's another yeah. way for saying nicely, we're going to waste our time by standing on a street corner and acting like holding a sign on a street corner is going to make a difference. I remember walking to my corner and it was six in the morning. It was pitch black. And there was a bank right there. And it was flashing the time and temperature back in the days when banks used to have that. And they flashed oh, yeah. the time and it said 6.02 a.m. And then they flashed the temperature and it was like minus eight or something. And I thought, you know, this is, this is going to be a little frosty. <laughs> like I'm glad I put on an extra pair of socks. I stood there for maybe 20 minutes and I said, you know, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee and maybe circle back when there's actually traffic. So that's my most, most vivid Iowa memory.
1: I've spent a lot of time there. The best was the John Edwards for president campaign in 2004. And everyone just needs to like just divorce yourself from how you feel about the guy now. But in 2004, he was not well known, running super behind John Kerry, who was the front runner. And then we got the Des Moines Register endorsement like on the Saturday, like the week before the Iowa caucuses and we're like driving somewhere like near Cedar Rapids and we got word that the Des Moines Register endorsed him with this great headline, John Edwards, his time is now. We went up with an ad right away, just black and white stills of Iowans, not John, Iowans at John's events with great piano music that ends with Iowa, your time is now. It was my most poetic moment in politics. John didn't win the Iowa caucuses, but he came in second, which was not expected. And, you know, it did catapult him to be what Nikki Haley probably wound up being, which was the runner-up, the serious runner-up to John Kerry. And then I was there in 2020 covering the Democratic Iowa caucus for the circus. And I mean, the whole experience felt synthetic, you know, even on the Democratic side, like, what are we doing here? The caucuses just don't make any sense. They're so complicated. And I was there the night that it all broke. Down and you're like, of course, we're like living on borrowed time here. But this year, like, let's talk about how it does matter.
0: Yeah, I, you know, the the thing is, is that Iowa really kind of sucks at picking the winner. Um, I think we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, particularly on the
1: Republican side.
0: Yeah, the last seven times, I think the only time they've picked the winner is Dole back in '96 and and, and, and George Bush in 2000. Yeah. yeah, W in 2000. But they do play an outside role in whittling the field. And by the way, I learned this week something interesting. I thought they did it the way the Democrats used to do it, and everybody gets together in a corner, and everybody can see who everybody else is for, which I thought would really favor Trump. Yeah, I thought that's No, they've changed it. And now, at the caucuses, you actually write your name on a piece of paper, so nobody really knows who you vote for, which probably helps both DeSantis and Haley a little bit in these communities that are dominated by Trump. Uh, Their showing will be a little bit better because they have switched it to a secret ballot. And by the way, the Democrats are going to mail in their ballots. They're not even doing it next week. They're mailing in their ballots, although there's no contest there. It's just interesting to see how these Iowa caucuses have evolved. And I predict before it's all over, they will get back to what they should be doing, which is a primary.
1: Primary, Yeah. So the big thing that I'm looking out for is turnout. You know, look, Trump has a huge lead in that state. He has a huge lead nationally. But it's like, how motivated are his supporters to turn out? That tells you a little bit about like what the motivation is overall for the general election. That and then, of course, what is his big number? His campaign says he wants to win by more than 12 points, which is the biggest margin of victory that there there has ever been for a Republican in Iowa. Obviously, that tells me they think they're going to win by more than 12 points. But, like, those are the two big things I'm looking out for.
0: The other thing I think is important is what the polling is going to say right before. And, you know, the gold standard of polling in Iowa yeah. is the Des Moines Register. Ann Seltzer, isn't that her name? Ann
1: Seltzer, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. Ann Thanks.
0: Seltzer. And she's teaming with our network, yeah. NBC, MSNBC, on polling this year. And they're going to have a big poll come out on Sunday, uh, the day before, 14th. Uh, the day before the Iowa caucus is on Monday. Look at those numbers and look and see what they've shifted. Uh, I think turnout is important. Yeah, The conventional wisdom would tell you that the cult is going to turn out because for many of them, it's the most important thing in their lives. And, you know, all the college educated folks who are clearly more in favor of DeSantis and Haley, will they be as eager uh, to turn out as the folks for Trump? The other thing I think is to see how many first time caucus goers will have.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. Explain that. What Trump has been able to do, and I saw this
0: firsthand in my election, Trump has been able to attract new voters that have never voted before in a way that many candidates would love to do but have never really succeeded in doing because he has attracted folks who think, okay, well, this guy is really, really different. He says the stuff I say that I shouldn't say out loud, um, and he says it out loud. So he's attracted these people. How many first-time caucus goers will Trump attract? And is his movement growing or is it shrinking? I think that's what's important. If I were the Haley campaign, I would be looking at that and to see what goes on there. And clearly, the most important thing we're going to learn Monday night, the most important thing we're going to learn is, is number two DeSantis or is number two Haley? If Haley wins number two in Iowa, she is in
1: way better shape in New Hampshire. I think you can put the crown of I am the runner up on her. Yeah. And the the longest and for some people, the most magical week in politics is the week between Iowa and New Hampshire. I love it so much. It's eight days long. It goes from Monday to the following Tuesday. And that is where there's the sense of possibility. And even though I still doubt even if Nikki Haley is able to overtake Donald Trump in, in New Hampshire, New Hampshire is not like the rest of the Republican Party, right? Okay. Voters in New Hampshire are highly educated, they are wealthier than voters in most other states. They're certainly wealthier than voters in South Carolina and Nevada. You know, Nevada will be the next contest in South Carolina. So, you, you, New Hampshire is kind of its own little universe. But still, there will be the sort of magic for Haley if she does come in second, building on that momentum and trying to overtake him. And New Hampshire loves that. New Hampshire loves being the state that you know the comeback kid with Bill Clinton. By the way, Bill Clinton was the comeback kid in New Hampshire by coming in second. Talk about being great at managing expectations. If she does manage to win New Hampshire, again, I think it's still doubtful that that means anything ultimately about who becomes the nominee. But then there's like a, you know, then there's a real fight. Yeah, well, managing expectations is really
0: important. And I think that's where Trump could get in a little bit of trouble because everyone's talked about for so long how far ahead he is in Iowa. And the reason they said 12 is because they are trying to manage expectations. Right. Uh, If Trump wins by less than 20, that's not a great night for him when he's been leading by more than 20 in almost every poll that's ever been taken in Iowa since the last presidential election. So and, and by the way, if he wins by less than 20, Haley, if she comes in second, can legitimately say this is happening. We've slowed his momentum. Although if you look at the money that's been spent, that's the other thing we haven't talked about much. Yeah. I mean, Haley has blown the doors off in terms of the money she's spent compared to both Trump and to DeSantis. The money people switched to her and yeah. it'll be interesting to see. I-, I I'll make a prediction. Are you ready? Oh, please. I say I think Trump wins by 22 and Haley comes in second, but
1: DeSantis is only one or two points behind. That's my prediction. Look, a win is a win. There's two tickets out of Iowa. Well, people say there's three tickets out of Iowa. There's really not. There's two tickets out of Iowa, particularly this year at best. I think you're right that if she comes close to him or beats him in New Hampshire, then all of a sudden he is vulnerable. He has a whiff of vulnerability around him. And then all of a sudden, everything that looks so smart right now, we start to question. Like, for example, you made this point to me earlier in the week, like, Him being in court all week as opposed to in Iowa, although he did that Iowa town hall last night, by the way, which he totally quadrupled down on being so proud of overturning Roe. So Biden campaign's like, thanks for that. There's our concise ad of how you're still crowing about that. But, you know, Allison you'll be like, oh, it's not so great that he's just focused on himself and focused on his court case. And it looks like he just cares about himself. He doesn't care about voters. He's taking this for granted. Then, like, all of that other stuff will kind of come into play. He'll not be so untouchable. Well, we'll
0: be here next week to hash out the results.
1: I'm excited. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you have questions for us, you can send it to nbcuni.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194 and we might answer it on the pod.
0: This show is produced by Vicki Vergolina and Jessica Schrecker with production support from Ivy Green and Jen Maris Perez. Katherine Anderson and Bob Mallory are our audio engineers. Our head of audio production is Bryson Barnes. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca
1: Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series.
0: Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download.